And I want you to notice that the subject that we're going to take on here this morning is the fall of Babylon, the fall of Babylon. And that's strange. It's a very strange thing because uh, Babylon uh, existed twice in ancient history, one in very ancient history, one in just history, uh, Babylon as an empire. And I'm going to talk to you about both those empires and then about the Babylon that exists even today and why the book of Revelation speaks about it. You have to remember that the book of Revelation was written in 96 A.D., about 96 A.D., when God gave the revelation to John the Apostle. And John wrote that just a few years later in 98 A.D., two years later, John himself died and passed on. And so the book of Revelation was given to us in that fashion. Uh, I want to read the scriptures here to you, then I'm going to show you some things. If you look in number one here, and it talks about two previous references here to the fall of Babylon that's mentioned. Revelation 14.8, if you look at Revelation 14.8 for just a moment, then we're going to get into the meat of our subject here this morning. If you look in Revelations 14 and 8, and uh, this is in the middle of a discussion of a lot of other things going on here. So the 14th chapter of Revelation is sort of a chapter prophecy in the middle of a book of prophecy. And it says here in verse 8, there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, notice this, calls it a city. Because she hath made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Sounds very wickedly. And in speaking of it yet to fall, yet we know that the two ancient Babylons of ancient history were already destroyed. Already destroyed. I can give you even scriptures on that and talk about it. So we want to know what that was all what that was speaking of in ninety six AD. Uh, if you'll also turn over to Revelations chapter 16, chapter 16, this is the, the chapter that we were looking at two weeks ago, and this is the chapter where there is things where the, the uh, land is affected, the water is affected, uh, the water becomes filthy, you can't drink it, uh, the sea is affected, and uh, ships on the sea, and even the sun becomes darkened, all of those things happen in this 16th chapter. I'm going to pick up here just reading uh, this one place here in the 19th verse, and then I will go back and finish reading out the 16th chapter, and then we're going into chapter 17. Look at 1619. The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God. Notice that. To give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now in this 16th chapter, you're talking about the vials being poured out. We showed you that on that revelation chart, the vials being poured out, the judgments of God falling. Uh, I have a chart here someplace of that, but I won't. I think you understand what I'm talking about, the vials, seven vials being poured out, and that this would be a time that God would send judgment upon the people in the tribulation period toward the very end of it. We're in the book of Revelation, folks. It is a book of judgment. Let me say one word here. 
How many of you picked up on our message in tongues? We had two messages in tongues interpretation last Sunday morning. How many of you remember that? I see there's not a lot of hands. If you were in that, that the later service, and uh, they were different than he, they were different. The first message in tongues was given to confirm the message that was preached in the pulpit, but the second message was a very sobering, very sobering. A message to the church that we need to get right, be right, not mess around, uh, be serious about our walk with God, because the Lord said, I am also a God of judgment. This is that message now that was given. I'm a God who, uh, I'm a God of mercy and grace today, but in the tribulation period, he's going to be a God of judgment, and that time is coming. That's why at the top of your lesson there, it says things coming on the earth. And Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, then look up for our redemption doeth nigh. I want to just tell you this, that America is falling away from the Lord. And uh, there is a, there's almost an anti-Christianity attitude that's developing in our nation. Uh, I would not be surprised somewhere in the next few years that churches will not begin to be taxed. Churches are not taxed because there are houses of worship. And for 200 or 300 years in America, churches have never been attacked because the people that go to church are already taxed. You know, we're already taxed. So we don't tax the church's house of worship. But uh, people who are looking for tax money to pull in, they see churches as a big revenue of tax money that can be brought in. I'm just telling you of things that's coming down the pike, I think, Headed our way. And we who are Christians need to be faithful, loyal, and committed to the Lord. Now, I want to back up here in, in chapter seven, Revelation 16, 17. Revelation 16, 17. I'm going to finish reading this out. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Verse 18. There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Look at this closely. Such as was not since men were upon the earth. A great earthquake will happen at that time. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And then in that 19th verse, we just read that too. It says the great city that was divided in three parts of the cities and nations. And great Babylon came in remembrance before the Lord to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now verse 20 and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Folks, I'm telling you, things are coming on this earth that you would never believe. We are starting to see a little bit of things happening, and we say, wow, they still got forest fires in California? Wow, they still got a storm coming in and hitting the Gulf Coast, and they still got rain coming to where it's so wonderful, and floods coming, you know, and all these kind of things. And we still hear about it. And we're going to keep hearing about it. And then there will be more earthquakes. Just keep tuned. There's going to be more earthquakes we'll be hearing about. But they keep building up. I won't go any further with that. Look what it says here in the 21st verse. When all the mountains were not found. Verse 21. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now, I'm telling you of things coming on the earth in the tribulation period. 
Where does that put us, Brother Myers? Remember, the rapture will take place before the great, the great tribulation period or before the wrath of God. The Bible says that God's people is not committed unto wrath. We may go through persecution. We may suffer some persecution here toward the end. But the Lord is going to take his people out of here. Just like Noah and his family was put in the ark and they rode above the tide. Everybody else perished in the tide. So the judgments of God, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Same thing with Lot and his family. They were taken out of Sodom before God sent judgment upon Sodom. So God is going to take his church out. So it says, as it was in the days of Lot, as it was in the days of of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Everybody with me? But these are things that will happen afterwards. And the reason I talk about them is that it's time to really get serious with God. Don't play around with the Lord. Don't play around with the, with the world. Don't play around with the devil. Don't mess around with all that mess that you know that will drag your soul down or cause you to lose your soul. Don't try to walk with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It don't, it, that doesn't work. God knows everything. He knows how we think. He knows what we're doing. He knows what our intentions are. So we want to make it straight and say, Jesus, we're all yours 100%. Praise God. Now, let me go into this 17th chapter because this is a very interesting chapter here. And I want to talk to you here about uh, this this Babylon that we're going to mention here. The 17th chapter now is where it talks about Babylon. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, let me just tell you here, I'm going to give you a little advance uh, understanding here what we're going to be looking at. And what is talking about Babylon here that is yet to come? We know there's been two. We'll talk about the other Babylons in a moment. What's coming here is a polytheism. Polytheism is the worship of many gods. Theism is God. Poly is many. Worship of many. Polytheism is the worship of many gods. And what God has always detested, and this happened in the very beginning. I'm going to show you that. I'm going to also show you that in some of these history books. But that polytheism began way back there in the very beginning. And it's an, it's an abomination to God to say that somebody else did this for you or somebody else gave this to you. I'm talking about some other God out there or some idol or some imagination of man did something for us. 
and never give God the credit for everything God has done. Now, when you read in the Old Testament, God is the creator of the heavens. He made the sun, the moon, the stars, he made it all. He made the earth and everything in it. And he made every plant, every living thing, everything that grows, he made it. Everything that walks upon the earth, he made it. Everything that crawls on the earth, he made it. Everything that swims in the sea, he made it. Everything that flies in the air, he made it. Everything, everything on this earth. And as far as your eye can see, God made it. He made us. Therefore, he is worthy of all of our praise and our worship and our thanksgiving and everything. And whenever we start giving credit to something else or some other idol or some other form of a God, that's an abomination to God. Now, I want to tell you where all this polytheism started. If you have your Bibles there, I want you to turn with me uh, back over here to uh, Genesis chapter 9. And this is right after, this is talking about Noah. Chapter 9, verse 1. Follow me here now. Just for my, this is not in your notes, I don't believe. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Notice that. Multiply, replenish the earth. He told them to do that. Look down in verse 7. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. This is what after the flood happened. They came out of the ark up on Mount Ararat and they're up in the mountains. He says, Now go forth and replenish the earth. And he said, be ye fruitful, verse 7 now. This is 9-7 of Genesis. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. This is God's commanding them. Now, I'm jumping over here very quickly to verse 19. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. So all human race came from these three sons. Here are those three sons, chapter 10, verse 1. Here they are. And in chapter 10, incidentally, in your Bible of Genesis, there is the beginning of nations. And it says here in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These are his three sons that he had. And uh, I'm jumping very quickly here down to verse 6 because I want to zero in on my thought. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, and, and Phut, and Canaan. Mizraim is the uh, was the father of the Egyptians. P H U T Foot is the is the uh, father of the Libyans, which is a country next to Egypt. And then Canaan is, of course, the Canaanites. And then I'm going to jump very quickly on over to uh, the descendants of Cush. Cush, look at verse eight very quickly. Here's where I'm going. And Cush begat Nimrod. If you got your Bible, underline the word Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom, he was a great leader and became an emperor or leader, king, whatever you want to call it. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel or Babylon. I'll show you why it became called Babylon. It was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Calni and in the land of Shinar. Now, let me show you what the land of Shinar is. Uh, this is a map of that Middle East here. And this is in the Middle East. And Ararat, as you can see, 
is up here, Mount Ararat, right here on this map. And the land of Shinar is down in here, all down in through here. And this is where he started, and this is where the, this Babylonian Empire. So this was a valley in here between the two rivers, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River, right in here. And this is called the land of Shinar. And this is where empires first began to be developed, and they began to come forth. And Nimrod was the first one who got control of the people to lead them and guide them and direct them. Now, the Bible talks about him founding Babylon there. Let me go a little bit further into a history book here. This is the writings of Josephus. And uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian who was born in, in uh, 37 AD, just seven years after Jesus was crucified, he was born. He lived during the period of the early church, the apostolic faith and so forth. He lived during that period of time. And he records the war of the Romans when they came and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. He records all that. He also records the history of the, of the world in, in the sense. I'm going to read just a few sentences here to you. This is what he says here. Now, the sons of Noah were three. He's really sort of repeating what the Bible says here, but he extends on it, extend, is a little bit more extensive on it. Now, the sons of Noah were three, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, born 100 years before the deluge, which is the flood. These first of all descended from the mountains into the plains and fixed their habitations there. Now, the plain in which they first dwelt was called Shinar. God also commanded them to send colonists. Now, I read that to you in the book of, uh, here in the book of Genesis in that 10th chapter. The Lord told them to send colonists abroad for the thorough peopling of the earth, that they might cultivate a great part of the earth and enjoy their fruits after a, beautiful, after a plentiful manner. But they did not obey God. They didn't do that. They all congregated down here in the land of Shinar in this valley. The Lord said, scatter down here, but they didn't do that. They did not obey God. God admonished them again to send out colonists. And we showed you in the Bible where two places, 9-1 was one place, and then further on, I think 9-17 was the other. God admonished them to send colonists, but they, they, but they, imagining the prosperity they enjoyed was not derived from the favor of God, but supposing that their own power was the proper cause of the, plent the plentiful condition, they were in they were in not in obedience to him. Now, verse down, I'm reading, jumping down the front. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness you see that's the spirit that's in the world today it's not god who gives us blessings it's mankind we're the ones that do it we give ourselves the blessings and the goodness and good life and all of that and so this is an attitude we have today not of god uh we went on to say that uh he gradually changed the government into tyranny seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant fear of himself and a, de and a dependence on his power. He also said he would be avenged on God 
if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. And that's why we read in the Bible in that fourth generation, which is what he was, Nimrod, that the fourth generation, they started building a tower, remember? In the Bible, I won't try to read the scriptures, but the Lord and angels came down and he said, let's go down and see what's going on. As though God doesn't know, but he just, he did that. He walked among them and everything. And he came down and was with them. And whenever he saw their foolishness, you know how God judged them? He changed their language instantly. So when a guy was laying blocks or bricks, you know, and building the tower and they had built it up so high, he turned to the guy and said, hand me a brick. And the guy said, what? What'd you say? And to him, he was babbling. He said, what's that? What's what that guy? I don't know he's babbling. The other one said, yeah, he's babbling. They were all babbling to each other. And because they couldn't understand what they were saying, and the Lord divided them all by families so that every family pulled themselves apart and says, hey, we all speak the same language, but we don't know what they're saying. And we don't know what they're saying. And so, and so they begin to scatter from that point on, see. And so it was because of that judgment of God upon them. But they were trying to build a tower. And according to Josephus, they thought, we'll show God. If he ever tries to flood us again, we'll all be in the tower, get up high. And yet God told Noah, I'll never destroy the earth again by water. That's what the rainbow is all about. It's my covenant with you and my promise to you. But they didn't regard the covenant of God and they didn't regard the promises of God. Folks, remember God keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his promise. If he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, hold on to that. Praise the Lord. If he said, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world, hold on to that. Praise the Lord. God will never deviate from his word. So he went on to say here, uh, now the multitude was very happy to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. And they built a tower. And then he goes on to say, the place wherein they built the tower is now called Babylon. And that's the reason because they babbled. Because of the confusion of that language, which they readily understood before, for the Hebrews mean by the word babble, confusion. We all know that. So that means they're babbling to each other. And so this is how the word Babylon began. And this is how that ancient... Now, the interesting thing about uh, this period of time was that Nimrod got into a fight with, uh, I'm just giving you the short and the long of it here, the short of the long, is that he got in fight with some kind of an animal like a bull or something, and he got gored and was killed. He died. Now, he had a wife whose name was, uh, who was whose name was this, and I got it here in your notes. Let me pull this off a minute. Her name was, uh, yeah, I'm picking up on it here. Oh my! Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? I'm I'm looking at it, but I can't pick it up. Oh, Simiramis. Nimrod's wife was Simiramis. This was her his wife, and his son was Nemus. Now, when he died, she there was no son. And she was very fearful that she would be pushed aside from the position that she 
was in being his wife and him such a great inner. He was the one who developed uh, armies and men in, with force so that if people didn't line up to their belief, then they were forced to do so. So that was the beginning of empire. So that ancient empire began. And Semiramis here, she was left high and dry. So what she did was that she began to say that he would visit her, that he would come back and visit her, and he was talking to her and having her. And then she also began to have affairs with men. And then she had a baby, and she said that the baby was the son of Nimrod. This is all in ancient history. And she said the son was ancient, and his name is Nemus. And Nemus here, and so it became a uh, father that was up there, and a mother, and a, and a son, a baby, and a son. And he grew up, and then she began to have this. This is where polytheism started, the worship of many gods. So that they began to worship uh, Nimrod. They began to worship her. They began to worship also Nemus later on as he grew up. And they began to introduce these. Now, uh, all of these writings here would tell us about it. I, I'm going to read another passage of scripture here to you very quickly here. Uh, I think I just read uh, to you out of this, Joseph, out of Josephus here, yeah. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me leave Josephus. I'm going to go to a book here. It's called The Two Babylons. This is one that's written by Hislop. And Hislop has a lot to say about it. It's what Hislop says. He was a historian. And he talks about the mystery Babylon because he's talking about what is talking about in the book of Revelation. He says the Chaldean mysteries can be traced up to the days of, Samaria, of Semiramis, who lived only a few centuries after the flood and who is known to have impressed upon them the image of her own depraved and polluted mind, that beautiful but abandoned queen of Babylon, abandoned by her husband when he died, was not only herself a paragon of unbridled lust and licentiousness, but in the mysterious way which she had a chief hand in forming, she was worshipped as Rhea, the great mother of the gods, which when she grew older, uh, which such atrocities as has identified her as Venus also, the mother of all impurity. And so I'm just giving you some, some information here about these situations and conditions here that existed back in those days. Uh, what developed and came out of that, now listen to me very closely here, was the belief that that Nimrod was the father and Nemus was the son and that she was like a mother, a mother god, and people would worship them. And so here's what it, it, he says, this guy, this, this writer here of the two Babylons. I'm going to read you something that he states here. He says that uh, all who have paid least attention to the literature of Greece, Egypt, Phoenicia and Rome are aware of the place which the mysteries occupied in these countries and that these mysteries in the different countries were the same and that Babylon was the primal source for which all these systems of idolatry flowed. And he states that. 
both Bunsen and Laird. Now, these were British archaeologists who explored the, Mid- the Middle East. Excuse me. <coughs> these were British archaeologists. They, they were real. They were, in fact, they were educated. I know Laird was educated at Harvard. And uh, they went, Laird went to Assyria and Nineveh and excavated that part of the world. Uh, the other one, uh, Bunsen, went to Egypt and worked over there. So he refers to these two archaeologists. Both Bunsen and Laird in their researches have come to the, uh, substantially the same result. That statement of Bunsen is the, is the effect that the religious system of Egypt was derived from Asia and the primary and the primitive empire in Babylon. Laird speaks of the same system, quote, of the great antiquity of this primitive worship, there is an abundant evidence that it originated among the inhabitants of the Assyrian plains. It is believed to be the most ancient of religious systems having preceded all of the Egyptians. Uh, The zodiac system as well, all the signs of the zodiac show unequivocally that the Greeks derived their notion and their arrangements of the zodiac and consequently their mythology that was intertwined with it from the Chaldees. The identity of Nimrod with the constellation Orion is not to be rejected. The Egyptian priests claim the honor of having transmitted to the Greeks the first elements of polytheism. If thus we have evidence that Egypt, Greece derived their religion from Babylon, we have equal evidence that the religious system of the Phoenicians came from the same source. This is his writings. Now to establish the identity between the systems of ancient Babylon and Rome, we have just to inquire in how far does the system agree with the system established in these Babylonian mysteries. Now what he is saying is that the system that is believed in Rome of polytheism that was in the Roman Empire that eventually was moved into Christianity was all started back there in Babylon. So when you read about it in the Bible that God's going to deal with it at the end, he's going to deal with all polytheism and all beliefs outside of believing that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, everything else. And here's what he says. And this is not an apostolic book. The ancient Babylonians, just as the modern Romans, recognize in words the unity of the Godhead while worshiping innumerable minor deities. In other words, they said that in words, there was a unity of the gods. So they would say there's one God, but it was a, is a union of gods. Now listen to this. Everybody still with me? Now listen to this very closely. If you haven't heard anything else, don't, don't forget this. So utterly idolatrous was the Babylonian recognition of the divine unity that Jehovah, the living God, severely condemned his own people from giving any allegiance to it. And the unity of that one only God of the Babylonians, remember now, one unity, not one God, one unity. The the one only God of Babylon, there were three persons. And to symbolize that doctrine of the Trinity, now this is his writings, not, not an apostolic book either. 
To symbolize the doctrine of the Trinity, they employed as the discoverers of Layard, that archaeologist that was in uh, that was in uh, uh, in uh, in uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of the name of it. yeah, in northern Syria, uh, the unity of Layard. They employed as the discoverers of Layard proof the triangle just as it is well known that the Roman church does at this day, the triangle. They use the triangle. They say one triangle, but three sides. So God is one, but three persons. You understand what I'm saying? And that came, all came from ancient Babylon. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Egyptians also use the triangle as a symbol of their triune identity. And here's something very interesting. I'm going to pass this along to you. Because when I was a boy, I lived in Tampa. When I was a young man in high school, I lived in Tampa, Florida. One of the pastors in that city was a man by the name of Carl Brumbach. I later read his book, said it backwards and forwards when I was going to Bible college in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Carl Brumbach wrote the book on God in three persons. And Carl Brumbach was, uh, first he was a church of God, then he became a sinner of God. But he was trying, he's proved, and he's trying to prove in his book that God is a unity. And he uses the triangle. I know because I read the book myself and saw the triangle that he used. So Carl Brumbach in his own writings wrote that. I'm going to finish this up now. In some churches, for instance, in the monastery of the so-called Trinitarians of Madrid, an image of the triune God with three heads on one body. The Babylonians had something of the same. Mr. Laird, in his last work, has given a specimen of such triune divinity worshipped in ancient Assyria. Now, this is all his writings now. The three heads are differently arranged in Laird's specimen, but both alike are evidently intended to symbolize the same myth in all such representations of the Trinity. In India, the supreme divinity, in like manner, in one of the most ancient cave temples, this is in India, is a represented with three heads on one body under the name Echo, Deva, and Trim, uh, Trimredi. One God, three forms. In Japan, the Buddhists worship their great divinity, Buddha, with three heads in the very same form under the name of San Poe Fu. All these have existed from ancient times. Now, I'm not going to go any further. I'm just telling you here that these people all have said that this polytheism, a worship of many gods, now has come to us sort of in the form of a trinity is one of them, but it's also in the form of worshiping of, uh, of the saints. I... Uh, I remember when I first went to St. Paul. St. Paul is a Catholic city, and uh, the highest hill there has a Catholic cathedral I'm sitting on top in that city. The capital is on one hill, Saint, and, the, and the Catholic church on another. They look across to the other, and it's very Catholic-dominated. I never will forget, I went to that Catholic church. I was just a student there. as in my first year. I thought, what's this all about? I grew up, you know, around Protestantism and Baptists and so forth, and I didn't know a whole lot about Catholics. And so I went to this Catholic church and I was walking around, and I was just walking around, and I look at statues, statues, everywhere, statues, statues. All these the saints are all everywhere. They had columns, then they had this round area here that was uh, 
their church area, about half as big as our auditorium in here. And I was just walking around, and people were in there praying, and they were doing different things. And I remember standing there looking like this. And while I'm standing looking, I look down, and there's a woman there kneeling down in front of me, looking at me like she's worshiping me. I said, oh, my God. I jumped out of the way. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't realize it, but I had walked up next to the statue of the Virgin Mary. And she was worshiping the statue of the Virgin Mary. And she was there doing like this, her eyes open, looking at the Virgin Mary, and she's worshiping that statue. But to me, she's looking like at me, and I had just sort of wandered back up, and I didn't know it, and I was next to that statue, you know. I said, oh, my God, I jumped out of the way. And I realized I was in front of that statue. One day I was driving down the road right outside of the city of St. Paul, and there was a little park there that was just about as big as this section right in here. It's a little park off the side of the road, and there's a statue of the Virgin Mary there. And it was wintertime. It was uh, cold weather, like, you know, I mean, winter comes early up there, you know, in Minnesota. And I remember driving by there, and a car was parked, and a man with a suit and a tie on, businessman, had gotten out of his car and had walked up to that statue of Mary and was worshiping that statue, bowing, praying to that statue. And the wind was blowing through his hair, and it was cold. And he was enduring the cold, and just in his suit, and that wind blowing through his hair. And I pulled off the road, and I just watched it, and I thought, that's worshiping the Virgin Mary. Now, I'm only saying that to say, folks, that all worship outside of Jesus Christ is a no-no with God. And he doesn't want us. And I'm just, it's the truth. It's the truth. Now, I'm going to finish this up. This book here that I brought is a book on the Nicene Creed. In 325 AD, Constantine, the emperor, told all of the Christian churches, I want you to get together and I want you to agree on one thing. And they all disagreed on things. They had people from all walks of life that come into Christianity. And he tried to get them all to harmonize. And so they formed the Nicene Council. He became emperor in 313, 325. This book here was written in 1909. It's very valuable. It's the only book I've ever found. I found it in a used bookstore in St. Petersburg about the time your pastor was born. About long. That's how long I've had this book. I've had pastors that offered me a lot of money for this one book. I won't, I won't sell it. I'm talking about apostolic. It's all about that Nicene Council and how it was formed and how it was, and how that they developed a, a creed. And they put together a creed. They call it the, uh, uh, the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was one of the church leaders at that time, and he had developed a creed. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Never was there a time that one was before the other. Never should there be a time after the other. So this, uh, let me just show you here. This is, this is a somewhat of it. Uh, I've been, let me put it down like that. There are three separate and distinct persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. Never was there a time that one was before the other. Never shall there be a time that one shall be after the other. There is no place that one is is that the other is not, there is, nor is one greater than the other. Neither is there anything known to one that is not known also to the other. The Holy Trinity is, equal, is equally omnipresent, 
omnipotent, and omniscient. Omnipresent is, means all-knowing, uh, all, everywhere. Uh, omniscient, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent is all power, and omniscient is all-knowing. So I'm just telling you all of this to let you know that this is that, what that creed's all about. And so uh, this book tells you how that all came about, how it was formed, and how the Athanasius had a creed like this, and he said, this is what uh, we believe in. They adopted that creed called the Athanasian Creed, later called the Trinitarian Creed. This is a book here called The People of the Creed. And it's not about the people of the name, it's the people about the creed. They became loyal to the creed after 325 A.D. Not the apostolic belief that you find in the book of Acts in the Bible. Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of your sins, and you shall be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. But it was the people of the creed. It was the creed that we believe in three. And as long as you believe in the three, you're okay. And uh, they finally, this after 325, I think it was uh, 383 or something like that, they formed, they passed a law that if you didn't believe in the creed, you could be put to death. That's how severe they had finally became with it. This is also a book called The Creed right here, The Creed. This is all about the creed. And it's, this, in other words, folks, it's not about... It's not about Jesus. It's not about who Jesus is, that he is our God and we are to worship him and him only. But it's about the creed. And I'm just telling you here that this is what this uh, polytheism is all about. I'll take you a little bit further on this because in the 17th chapter it talks about, I got a lot to tell you about what God says will happen to this woman and how that she's a, more, a very powerful person. In this 17th chapter, we got a lot to look at, and I'm going to pick that up next week. But I just want to let you know here today, thank God for our truth. I'm telling you, hold fast to it. It's the greatest thing we have. Love God with all of your heart. Don't move or budge from it. Jesus Christ is God Almighty manifest in flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. Praise the Lord. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on Jesus Christ. So God is, is Jesus Christ, reconciling the world into himself. Let's stand together. God love you here today. You've been a great audience. We praise you. Praise.